Amen. This morning we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, This morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. But before we uh, dive into that, I want to address an accusation uh, that's been made against me uh, by my my wife. Um, She regularly uh, tells people that, that that I never tell her anything. So it says, Christopher never tells me anything. This will, this is in situations where someone tells them like, you know, oh, you know, yeah, we're going out of town next week. We're going to, uh, we're going on vacation to, you know, wherever. And, and they'll be like, I, I told, I, I, I told your husband, I told Christopher that, that. and she'll say, Christopher never tells me anything. Okay. And this happens all the time. And it is true but it's not my fault. Okay, that's the key. It's not my fault. It's the children. It's the children. Yes. See, because I have three children in my house, which means whenever I think, whenever I have the thought of like, oh, that, that happened. I don't, I don't need to tell Robin about that. And I start to tell her, I, I begin, I may even start it. I might even start the sentence. Mom, 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 I need help with this. Mom, 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 guess what happened today? Mom, 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 mom. And by the time that's done, I don't remember anymore. So I'll, I'll tell her, I'll even say, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you. It, it, I can't get a word in edgewise, you know, uh, because there's just so much going on in my house. So that, I, I was reminded of that because that's kind of where we're at in, in 1 Corinthians is that Paul is finally, in chapter 15, getting around to what he really wanted to talk about. Everything else, he's just been dealing with problems. He's been trying to deal with all of the different problems in the church in Corinth and trying to solve all these things. Now, finally, he's going to say what he most wants to tell them, right? What he is most concerned to tell them, which is the gospel. He wants to remind them of the gospel. And so we're going to dive in this morning We'll start first with just verses 1 and 2. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is is not going to remind them of the gospel for the first time. Right, he says, this is the gospel I preached to you, meaning I already preached to you. It's what he preached to them when he first came to Corinth and first founded the church. And he wants to remind them of this gospel. Now, I, I do want to make one clarification that gospel, um, you know, it's a word that we're familiar with. We've heard of it, right, as, as a, a church term and as even like a, a music term, right? But it, it's just Old English. It's actually not even from the Greek. The Greek would be euangelion. Um, but in, it's actually Old English. It's an Old Saxon word um, that's a combination of two words. Uh, originally, it would have been God's spell. God's spell. Um, and, and the God meaning good and spell meaning news or message. Right? So it literally means good news. We're just using Old English. It's like when you see one of those stores and they decide to just add an E to the end of shop. It's like that. Shoppy. Ye old shoppy. Gospel. 
is just an old English word, but it simply means good news. So when we read it, we should think good news. And I'll alternate between those two terms uh, as I, I often do when talking about this. He says, this is the good news that I already preached to you. And he says, that which you received, you received it, you accepted it. That's why this church exists at all, because they have to receive it. And that is all that they had to do. All that they had to do to be saved was to receive the gospel. That's all anyone has to do to be saved is to receive, accept, believe the good news about Jesus. That's all that's required. And so he says, this is the gospel that I already preached to you that you already received. But we see that the gospel must be reiterated. It must be preached over and over and over again. It's not enough just to know it intellectually. We must know it emotionally and in every part of our lives. It's essential that we hear the gospel regularly, even if we're simply preaching it to ourselves because as Paul says, this is the gospel in which you stand. The gospel is the good news that we stand in. It gives men and women stability. Without the gospel, our stability lies only within ourselves. And as we all know, we are unreliable. The gospel allows us to put our faith in Christ alone. When he says it's that which we stand in, he's saying we are in it all the time. It's how we remain upright. It's how we, our lives are supported. We don't support ourselves. We stand in the gospel. That is solid ground. He also says that it's the gospel by which you are being saved, which might be a confusing way to put that for some people because it makes it sound like our salvation is not complete makes it sound like it's not accomplished yet, that, it, that at some point in the future it will happen, but that it is not there yet. But Paul makes it very clear, and Scripture in general makes it very clear that salvation is accomplished once and for all when we accept it. We see this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, where he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's final. Is saved. You are saved once and for all. Your status before God is righteous. But there is a sense in which our salvation is also an ongoing process. While our status is complete, the gospel is also actively saving us. Saving us from our sinful ways. Saving us from our hopelessness. The gospel isn't just something that we receive once and its work is done. The gospel is what sanctifies us as well. And that's really what Paul's talking about here when he talks about the God, that by which we are being saved. He's talking about the process by which the gospel works its way through our lives and sanctifies us, makes us holy, makes us more like Jesus. We are being saved by the gospel as well, even though it is also finally, ultimately accomplished. It is also actively at work in our lives on a daily basis. It's through this understanding, through understanding what Jesus has done for us that we are transformed. We see this in 2 Corinthians. If you picked up a study guide, I somehow have the wrong reference in there. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. You can correct that on there if you want to on page 2. 
He says this, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice what he says in this verse. He says that the way we are transformed is simply by beholding the glory of the Lord. That means it's not about your effort to be transformed. It's not about how hard you're trying to be good, to do the right thing. It's by how closely we see Jesus, how clearly we see Jesus, and how often we're looking at him. That as we watch him, as we understand the gospel, we are being transformed simply by that grace. As we understand him more, as we know him better, we are transformed, not through our effort, but simply by him and the grace that he has given us. Paul also says that, we are, that this is true if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Now again, that's another, another phrase in here that might be concerning if we're thinking about our salvation and in terms of our final status before God as guilty or innocent, as righteous or unrighteous. Is it conditional on if we hold fast to the word? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying our ongoing sanctification process, the idea that we stand in this gospel and are being saved by it, that is only true if we hold fast. If we hold fast to the word as it was preached to us. If we hold fast to the scripture, then those things can be true. But if you are not holding fast to the scripture, you, you, you might come to Christ, you might accept the salvation that he's, that he's offered to you, but it's not going to actively transform your life unless you're holding fast to the word, unless you're gazing upon the glory of the Lord. Unless those things are true, you're not going to receive the benefit of the stability of the gospel, of standing in it, and of being saved, having your life transformed by the gospel. That only happens if you hold fast to the word. He says, unless you believed in vain, and unless you just gave up after that and did not continue to seek him. It is clear that our salvation itself is not conditional. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's why Paul calls the gospel that which you received, because that is all that is required. We accept the forgiveness that he has offered to us. But our sanctification does require that we hold fast to the word. This is what Paul means when he tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to work out our salvation. We see this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's another verse and another phrase that, that kind of freaks people out if they're concerned about whether or not this could be true, that we are truly saved by grace. Why does he say, work out your own salvation? I can't work out my own salvation. That's why I came to Jesus in the first place. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about figuring it out for ourselves. He's talking about allowing the gospel to work its way through our lives, to allow it to work itself out in our lives, to play itself out as we believe it more and as the Holy Spirit convicts us to change because of what the gospel has given us. To change because we recognize what he has done for us 
more and more. We allow it to work its way through our lives. We might think about it like, uh, like a marinade. Right? If you take a piece of meat and you put it in a marinade, how powerful is that marinade going to be? Depends how long you leave the meat in the marinade. Right? If you put it in there for five minutes and then you throw it on your grill, you might as well have not done it at all. Right? But if you put it in there like overnight, now it's got a chance to soak in and really change the meat itself. Same is true for our lives and with the gospel. The more we are in it, the more we allow it to soak into our lives and to work its way through every part of us, the more and more we will be transformed. So what is this gospel? What is this good news that we've received, that we stand in, that we're being saved by, and that we must hold fast to? Well, Paul's going to explain that here next in verses 3 through 7. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Paul had delivered to the Corinthians the gospel as of first importance. It was the most important thing he could tell them, so he told them the gospel first. And it remains true to this day that the gospel is the most important thing we can preach because without the gospel, nothing else matters. When Paul came to Corinth, he had a lot of options of things he could preach, a lot of options of things that he could talk about. But when he came to Corinth, he didn't preach to them about obeying the Ten Commandments. He didn't teach, preach about fighting a culture war against the rampant debauchery in Corinth, although he certainly could have. Right? If you walked into the city of Corinth, you see tremendous debauchery, tremendous evil. Paul didn't go after that stuff. He preached the gospel. He didn't do a series on how to have a great marriage or raise successful children. He didn't even do miraculous signs and wonders as his starting point. He preached the gospel. Because without it, none of those things matters. Without it, it we, cannot, we cannot obey the Ten Commandments without the gospel. We cannot transform culture without the gospel. We cannot have a great marriage or raise children without the gospel. And without the gospel, miraculous signs and wonders are meaningless. Now, there is a phrase that is sprinkled throughout Paul's explanation of the gospel that's doing a lot of heavy lifting, and that is in accordance with the scriptures. Right, throughout a couple times in this passage, Paul just says, in accordance with the scriptures, and that, that's doing a lot of heavy lifting. Right? That's doing a lot, there's a lot of weight in that little phrase because the gospel didn't just drop out of nowhere. It had been set up from the beginning. That's why we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy in scripture over and over and over again. For those who had eyes to see, the gospel was always coming. The good news was always coming. There was a Messiah coming who was going to change everything. So as we consider these elements of the gospel, we'll examine some of the scriptures Paul's talking about. So first, Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, had died to pay the price 
for our sins. The idea that sin required a sacrifice was already well established by the sacrificial system presented in the law of Moses. We studied this as we read Exodus, as we studied Exodus and Leviticus. We can see clearly that there's no Israelite who would protest that sin was a problem that required a sacrificial solution. One example of the prophecies that point to this idea is Isaiah 53. It's really true of the whole chapter. I encourage you to go back and read it, but I'll highlight verses 3 through 6 this morning. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This chapter so clearly points to Jesus as our sacrificial lamb, as the Messiah who was promised. And we see that Jesus fulfilled these scriptures, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I do want to pause for a moment here and and talk about the idea of sin, because that's one of those words that we really only use in in church contexts, or use it in, in, in worship services, use in Bible studies and community groups when you're with other Christians, but not, not when you're out in the world. Or that's not really a term that is used in our world today, certainly not in any kind of a positive context, right? Maybe in a mocking way, but not, not in a real way. And so when we go to preach the gospel to people, that can be a big stumbling block of what do they, what do they think when I say sin? When I, when I, if I were just ask somebody on the street, you know, are you a sinner? They'll go, oh, you must be one of those Christians, huh? And and they would have this warped idea of what we even mean by the word sin. So as we consider sin, even even though that's as a word, it's foreign to people, um, the concept itself is actually one that most people will agree with. It's a simple idea that no one is perfect. Jesus defines uh, sin pretty clearly for us when he is asked about the greatest commandment, right? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That to fulfill the law, we simply have to love God and love others well. Sin, then, is simply hurting God or offending God and others, right? How we hurt other people, how we hurt God, how we offend other people, how we offend God, how we've rebelled against him as our creator, And most people will agree that that they're not perfect. Most people will agree that they have hurt other people. So then the question just becomes, what does God think about this? And you might even encounter people who aren't sure if there's a God. But you can kind of phrase it like, okay, if there is a God, right? then, then do you think he might have something to say about the fact that we have rebelled against him? and about the fact that we have hurt other people that he has also created in his image? And if that is true, then, then what are we to make of what happens after this life? And if we have this idea of heaven, 
What might that heaven be like if imperfect people like us are allowed in uh, to hurt one another? That doesn't seem very idyllic. Now, that doesn't seem like it would actually be a paradise or heaven that we would enjoy if sinners like me are allowed in. So that's why God sent a solution. He sent Jesus to die for our sins that we might be forgiven and that we might accept that he would give us a new spirit, change us, perfect us so that we can be with him forever in a perfect place. Paul is also concerned here that to establish the fact that Jesus actually died, that he was buried. It's important, in fact, to establish that Jesus actually physically died. That's true in our world. It's true simply that that's important because this is the medium that God created to, to, for us to live in. And this is the medium that we broke and that needs to be corrected so the physical earth and their physical bodies, our physical selves, all have to be transformed. It can't just be a spiritual reality. The reason that Paul kind of highlights this, highlights the death, the physical death of Jesus and the physical resurrection of Jesus, which we'll actually see even a lot more in the passage we'll look at next week, that Pastor Jason will actually be preaching on next week. The reason that he emphasizes that so strongly is because this was something that they were denying in Corinth, and that was a big problem in the early church, was a denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus, that they made it to be just a spiritual resurrection um, and, and kind of denounced all physical things in general, generally saw the spiritual as positive and the physical as negative, and Paul wants to correct that because some in the Corinthian church had been denying the physical resurrection of Jesus. So Paul establishes that he physically died and that he was raised on the third day. Jesus actually died and was actually resurrected on the third day. One scripture that points to this is Psalm 16, verse 10, where he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is, the, this is a, a messianic psalm in which he's talking about the fact that the Messiah would not be abandoned to the grave that he would not be left in, seal, in, in Sheol or the grave, and that he would not see corruption, that he would not rot, essentially. Jesus' physical resurrection represents his triumph over the curse, not only in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm as well. And it points to our own corporeal resurrection. After emphasizing this corporeal resurrection, Paul also emphasized the fact that Jesus appeared bodily. He appeared to over 500 people, and most of them were still alive when Paul was writing this. That's why Paul highlights and says, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, well, some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. Why is he mentioning this? Because he's telling them, go ask them. You don't believe me? Go ask the people that saw him, because they're still alive. I'll write a couple of their names down, Peter, James, Go ask them yourselves. They saw him physically. Go find out what happened. And that for us, even though we don't have that opportunity, this scripture is validated by the fact that it contains that kind of claim, right? that kind of proof of saying, you can go ask people for yourselves. You can check the validity of this. This is real. That gives validity for us for this scripture itself. 
So Paul has presented the gospel now, but now he's going to shift into testimony. And this is an important element that we sometimes forget when we proclaim the gospel, that Paul proclaims the gospel and it says, here are the facts of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's presenting the gospel, but now he's going to shift and talk about his own experience with the gospel. We see this, verses 8 through 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. For by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul shifts from talking about the fact that he appeared to all these people, that he appeared to Cephas and James and over 500 people. He says, and then last of all, he appeared to me. He appeared to Paul bodily. Paul saw and spoke with, interacted with the resurrected Christ. This is what qualifies Paul to be an apostle. The other apostles had walked with Jesus for three years of his earthly ministry, but Jesus had another plan for Paul. But Paul admits that he's unworthy to be called an apostle. He says, I persecuted the church of God. In fact, that's what Paul was doing when Jesus called him. When Jesus called him, he was on his way with official papers in hand to go persecute the church. And Jesus knocked him down on the road to Damascus and said, you're on my team now. You're going to be working for me from here on. So he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle at all. This is not my, like I was not so well qualified that, 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 that I, he had no choice but to promote me. That's not what's going on here. I was unworthy to be called an apostle. But then he recognizes the fact that it's by grace of God that he is where he's at today. It's only by God's grace that he was an apostle. Jesus had called him when he was unworthy. And we should recognize this as well. We should recognize that for us, wherever we're at, it's only by the grace of God that we are where we are. And then in response to that grace, we ought to desire to work for him, desire to work for the kingdom, just as Paul did. So Paul says, his grace toward me was not in vain. He didn't squander the grace that God had given him. He recognized that he was unworthy, that he'd received tremendous grace, and he responded accordingly. And this ought to be the desire of every believer to say, I want to respond to what the grace that God had given me. I want to do, because Paul's not using hyperbole here when he says, I worked harder than any of them. He had clearly worked harder and at greater risk than any of the other apostles. Why? Because he recognized how great the grace was that he had been given. He understood the, the greatness of his sin, the greatness of his Savior, and he worked in proportion to that. Our effort will always be in proportion to our understanding of the grace that we've received. Our understanding of the grace that we've received will always be in proportion to our understanding of our own sin. If you understand that you're a great sinner, you will understand that you have a great Savior. 
and respond to that grace accordingly. Charles Spurgeon wrote something similar where he says, let not your sense of sin make you think little of my master. You are a great sinner, but he is a greater savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or overmatched him. Come, Goliath sinner, the son of David can conquer thee or save thee yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, accept the forgiveness is offered to you by Jesus. Paul says, this is the good news that you have received. If that's not true of you, if you've not received that good news, if you've not accepted it, put your faith in Jesus. Do so now. Trust in him for the salvation of your sins. Number two, allow the gospel to work its way through your life. That's what we call the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, becoming holy, is to simply allow that good news to impact every part of your life, meaning not just how you come here on a Sunday morning, but how you go to work, how you interact with your family, how you interact with your friends. Everything that you do can be impacted by our understanding of the good news of Jesus. And then lastly, testify to what Jesus has done for you. Tell people about it. Tell people the good news and tell people how it has impacted you. I'm going to pray here in just a minute and then we'll take communion together. Um, after that, we'll sing one more song. And then after that, there'll, there'll be a prayer team that'll be available right over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to, to pray for you. Uh, please feel free to come forward. They'll, they'll be right, they're always right over here on the side and they'd love to pray for you. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was rose again and then appeared to people. We thank you that we can put our faith in that truth, that one day Jesus will return and we will rise. We will go to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth where everything is fixed, everything is perfected, including ourselves. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, and it's in his blessed name we pray. Amen.